0: Adventure. We're a movie podcast where every week we sit down on a Monday and have a conversation about a movie that we've just watched. This week we're discussing the film The Red Shoes. I'm your best ballet dancer host, Aiden Walker.
1: And I'm Blake, who doesn't do ballet. I'm your other host. <laughs> but yeah.
0: So uh, this is an older one. This yeah. is a movie I've wanted to watch for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm. Same. I've always been kind of too afraid to watch it. I don't know if you have this same... I have this weird aversion to movies that are, like, considered the best or whatever, because I'm, like, worried it won't live up to my expectations or something.
0: I feel like we've talked about this before. It's have like, we? <laughs> what did we call it last time we were talking about it? It was something like classics aversion or something. It had oh, like been. It was, like, classics anxiety. Yeah.
1: No, totally. Have it big time. That's why, yeah, like, on my website this month, I'm trying to, like, only watch classics for, like, a month just to, like, make myself
0: have, be, like, a theme kind of thing. So. Yeah. I mean it it's would, important. We, it would be embarrassing if we went into like all the classics that we haven't seen. I know, you know? yeah, I don't
1: wanna say it. I'm getting no. better though. I think as time I think goes I'm on. Too. Yeah. I just have to like really force myself. It's hard. It's like, you know, taking a bite into, like, a food you don't like, but maybe it'll be good because <laughs> it's nutritious. Who knows? Yeah. But, yeah.
0: I feel like there's a number of very classic gangster-centric movies that I haven't seen that mm. I need to have seen. You know, but, it, you you happens. know it happens. It yeah. happens, yeah. I mean, some of those movies are, like, almost four hours long, and you're just That's like, hey, true. That's true. That's the problem with a lot of classics. A bunch of other movies. A lot of right classics
1: now. are very long. That's what I'm discovering.
0: So The Red Shoes, this is a the classic. It's been heralded as one of the best movies of all time. It's one of those kind of movies where people say stuff like that. Yeah. And I have to ask, Blake, when are we going to talk about a stinker?
1: Um, I don't know. It looks like, you know, looking at the schedule ahead, there are no real stinkers. But We
0: only talk about movies that are good so I know.
1: far. I mean, I don't know. I would personally always love to talk about... Like, Troll 2, The Room, any of those classic stinker we, kinds of movies. We
0: have to schedule a bomb. We gotta we'll schedule, to schedule something one. that was just terrible. I don't know so what it'll So we can be. just get it all out and yeah. just, you know. I want
1: it to be, like, a fun bomb, though, because I feel like there's so many bombs that are just, like, terrible and, like, boring, but then there are, like, some bombs that are, like, entertaining. So we have to, like, make sure yeah, yeah. it's one that's, I wanna like... I want to
0: have fun while I'm making fun exactly, of a Exactly,
1: you know? There are just certain kinds. Not every bad movie's like that, though. I feel like most bo- bad movies are very painful to watch, so... It's good to avoid that for sure.
0: That is that is the truth. <laughs> do you want to? Should we talk about the the differences between the movie The Red Shoes and the original story of The Red Shoes? I would be honored to do that.
1: I love how you like ask me and then like I'll do it <laughs> without <laughs> me answering. Hey, I'll do it. <laughs> sure, I guess. Is it going to be really long?
0: No, 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 no. It's it's really short, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, so, look. <laughs> He's ready. I'm he, he knows that I like to go on and on. So, oh yeah. Uh, so here we go. So the Red Shoes, the movie is from nineteen forty-eight, but the original story, written by Hans Christian Andersen, the fairy tale writer, was originally published in eighteen forty-five. Oh wow! I believe it was in April. 1845? Wow, that's very specific. Good month, I'm sure. Great month, that's when I was Um, born. So it was published in a collection of fairy tales. The gist of it is pretty dark, as classic fairy tales seem to go. It's much darker than what happens in the actual film, Mm. The Red Shoes. What happens in the story is that there's a young girl named Karen, Mm. and she has a pair of red shoes, and then she is adopted. Her new mother gets her a new pair of red shoes. She starts dancing and doing some stuff. She goes to a church and does some dancing, and I'm not going to go into the full detail of the story, but some bad things happen. There's some curse associated with the shoes that make Logged her curse. not be able to stop dancing. Oh. And instead of her just dancing until she's dead, like she does in the ballet in the film, she has somebody cut her feet off.
1: Oh, well. So
0: they cut her feet off, and then her severed feet continue to dance. Wow. Yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff. The feet like follow her all over the place. She gets new wooden <laughs> feet, and then at the end of the at the end of the story, she meets an angel who I don't know hears here's her plea or something, and her heart is so filled with joy that she dies, and then she goes to heaven where the feet can't follow her. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. Wow. So yeah, that's my short summary Why of the did Red Shoes. freaking
1: Hans, think of this. What inspires this? <laughs> you know,
0: that's funny. I to like, write read, a book about. Them. I did read that. The inspiration was that his father was a shoemaker, and like a woman and her daughter came in and asked for I think red shoes and he made them and then they were like yo these shoes suck <gasps> and Hans Christian Andersen's father was like no they don't and then he just cut up the shoes and destroyed them Wow! He was like you don't like my shoes you can't have my shoes Even and then, apparently that was the inspiration
1: that's quite an inspiration to think like oh these shoes suck let me write a story about a girl <laughs> getting her feet cut off definitely a 180 yeah this movie is about a up and coming would be ballerina named Victoria Page who Kind of, she captures the attention of this theatrical empresario played by, what's his name? Played, the older uh, guy. his
0: name is Anton Walbrook.
1: Anton Walbrook. He, he plays he...
0: Boris LeMontov.
1: Yes, this character kind of witnesses Victoria Page's, like, her work before, and so he takes her under her wing and kind of turns her into this overnight star through a performance in the Red Shoes Ballet. But while, you know, she's kind of starting her career, she falls in love with a composer who also works for this director. And so ultimately she has to choose between her love of dancing and her love of this other composer while also having this kind of Svengali kind of character also try to control her at the same time. And we can just say that things don't work out well for her in the end. But
0: Yeah, she's mentally tortured by how much yeah. they want her to dance and yeah. how strict they are in looking over her and they decide what her daily routine is for her and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very manipulative and controlling yeah. the way she's treated.
1: Yeah, and I feel like, for me, it would seem more problematic if, like, it were in 1948. But I guess, like, that's plausible to have to choose between like love and your career but like even now i'm like this is dumb she should just like abandon them both and do whatever she wants but not here
0: (laughs) yeah i I think it speaks volumes though to the idea of of control and how you can really feel like you're indebted to somebody right Mm -hmm. he saw her out of a crowd he picked her out of like eight other dancers and was like you are the one (laughs) you know and and it's just that power dynamic of him being like i can choose to put you in a performance Mm -hmm. or not And, like, I'm the one who made you famous, so I can see why she would feel powerless. Oh, for sure. It probably doesn't feel like she earned what she was doing, because even while she dances and she is really good, there's all these people who are telling her, oh, yes, your performance tonight was just okay. It was (sighs) all right. And it's like, what? She was so good.
1: I think they don't have eyes. They maybe, like, had two eye patches covering both eyes, because there's just no way. I feel like you couldn't see her dance and go like, oh, you know. I'm also not really, like... A ballet stop so maybe she could just be okay and i'm just like <laughs> very i'm, I'm sure there
0: are dance critics out there who are like oh, or sure. like dance instructors who see this and go oh it's yeah. a, th- those are the same people who watched lala land and got mad because ryan oh, gosling true. and emma stone didn't dance just perfectly Yeah, they couldn't
1: sing or whatever No, but this movie is definitely i mean i feel like there aren't a ton of movies like it except maybe like darren aronofsky's black swan which is similar a lot more dark in terms of suffering for your art that is kind of the pivotal theme in this movie is having to suffer for your art also feeling indebted to someone who helped you succeed in the field but it is interesting because up until this point the movie's directors michael powell and emmerich pressburger had mostly done similarly visually ornate comedies dramas but nothing like this. this is kind of it's not necessarily a musical film but it has the same thing of like you are photographing these extended dance sequences. And so it is interesting to watch their other dramas and then go from that to this because, I mean, in general, I think it's difficult to film these sorts of things and just not seem like you're just, like, setting up a camera and then watching someone, you know, like, do their thing. So to be able to supplement that really well and then also build this really impressive drama film out of it is... So hard to do, for sure.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm so happy that it wasn't like, oh, it's ballet time, and then they set the camera up somewhere Mm -hmm. in the audience and made it look like a talent show. Yeah. Right? It was, should we talk about the 17-minute extended sequence? Oh, my gosh.
1: That stuff is just breathtaking. It's like
0: exactly the halfway point through the movie is Mm -hmm. when that happens, too. Yeah. It's so expertly placed. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is there's the first performance of The Red Shoes. They have, a, they have a composer create an original score for it. They have Victoria practice and practice and practice and get ready. And it's like the whole first half of the movie is you ramping up mm-hmm. towards this performance. And then everybody's nervous beforehand. She's like extremely nervous. She's backstage saying, oh, I can't remember what my first steps are. It's very intense. And then it begins. And you go from being in the world of backstage and seeing... What's happening behind, and you, but then you think like the expectation is, I'm gonna go from being backstage to now being in the audience, when in fact the switch is, you're gonna go from being backstage to literally being inside of the story of the play, mm-hmm. and then also going into the mind of the dancer. Yeah. Because Victoria's been tortured. Like it's hard work to do yeah. in ballet, it's very rigorous, it's physically intense. So there's this no dialogue, 17 minute sequence of performance where the cuts are very hidden so she ends up in places on the stage where you can tell the audience can't see what's happening here Mm -hmm. but everybody's still dancing there's these weird points of projection where you can see her and she's looking at kind of a ghostly image of herself dancing and it goes on like that and the story it tells is similar to the one in the fairy tale except that there's a cobbler who makes the red shoes and clearly he's created them to be cursed and he gives them to her in this kind of devilish way and instead of her cutting her feet off she just dances forever until she's like tattered rags and she just collapses and dies Mm. on the steps to a church
1: no the whole sequence is so impressive because yeah powell and pressburger they do a good job of giving you a sense of what the audience is seeing but it also has these layers of what victoria's experiencing and then also what's going on in the story and it fuses all those things together so perfectly like even though you do have all these separate dimensions and points of view it flows together so well in such a beautiful way for the most part. And I think it's hard to, I mean, it is 17 minutes long and they're, you know, such a high possibility that, like, audiences won't go for it. But because Pal and Pressburger, they stage it so cinematically and really find the beauty in all of these components that it almost becomes like a separate movie. Like, it's just so fully realized that you almost feel like you don't even have to watch the movies surrounding
0: it. There's two moments during the extended scene that are really excellent. And one of them is she is looking at one of the other characters who she's dancing with at one point. And there's, you know, just kind of a hard cut. You can tell, but it's a it's a great special effect for the time. There's a hard cut where you're looking at this other dancer and then suddenly he's Lermontov. He's the the, the director, yeah. like the owner, or the producer of the show who's forcing her to do all the things. And you can just see, you don't really see a reaction from her, but you just see that what she is perceiving is not, this dancer but like this guy yeah there's that and then there's another really great part which is like a fake out where she exits like stage left right and the music kind of dies down for a second you think oh wow so that was like eight minutes of extended stuff that was very impressive and then she turns around and she goes back out and it resumes yeah like after her exit and you go on for another you know seven minutes or so and you're like whoa it's nuts it is nuts and yeah. also the
1: fact too that i mean this was moira is that how you say moira Yeah. Mara. This was her first movie. She was a ballet dancer in real life, and she was 21 at the time. And, like, at first you're not sure, because she's kind of an unconventional beauty. She has, like, pretty, like, thin lips, and I don't know. Like, she's not, like, the standard notion of female beauty that you had, you know, watching 1940s movies. But as an actor, she is pretty strong. But then you see her in this sequence and is such an incredible dancer. And then you realize, like, what a stroke of luck for Powell and Pressburger to have found. I mean, she was successful, you know, on stage anyway, but... The fact that she could also be a very convincing actress as well as be able to be at the center of this spectacle is very impressive in the way she is able to infuse her dancing with what her character is going through is very convincing as well. I think Powell and Pressburger highlight that really well. I think Jack Cardiff's cinematography does. It's just an all-around, very amped-up experience.
0: I should clarify, I said that she dies on the steps of a church at the end. I didn't want that to be confusing, because her character in the ballet she's performing dies. The Moira Victoria character in the story does not die. She continues to perform yeah. ballet mm-hmm. after half of the movie has gone by. Yeah, ballet. and then she dies. And then, <laughs> and then she does, in fact, die at the end, just like in the story, except yeah. different. Yeah, a little bit
1: different. Different <laughs> reasons for sure
0: she does die wearing the red shoes though
1: i like the parallel i do think it's weird because at the end like after she does die in kind of a gruesome way like it's wild because she does like live for a couple more minutes to like be like take off the shoes and like but why are you still alive like not to be like cynical but it's also like it's 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 pretty shakespearean ending oh it's such a shakespearean ending Yeah. yeah
0: she's given this ultimatum this choice the director uh man lermontov comes back to her and he says You have to choose. She she falls in love with the composer of the show, and his character's name is Julian Craster. He's played by Marius Goring.
1: Great name. Wait, is that
0: right? That is right. She falls in love with the composer, and basically what happens is the director, Lermontov, gives her this choice. He says, you can either go away with your lover and live with him and never perform ballet again, or you can stay with me and forget about him. It's like this kind of like Darth Sidious kind of yeah. stuff. He's like, join me and together we can be the most powerful ballet performers in mm-hmm. the galaxy, you know? It's very intense. Yeah, and then like
1: um, he does that, and then the composer she's in, love with, she's in love with is like, well, if you dance ever again, then like I'm leaving you. So it's like she has no option because she, like she wants to dance, but then she'll lose her husband, and then like, but she loves her husband. And so, like, it's just like this really, you could see why she would kind of
0: yeah. fall apart. After so, that. so her choice is to jump off of a <laughs> which is banister right. and uh, fall in front of a moving train. Yeah.
1: And Liz for a second after that, which is wild, but whatever. It is funny because these characters are certainly types. You know, she, when I mean, we first see her and she's an upcoming dancer, she comes from an aristocratic background. So you get the sense that she's never necessarily had to struggle in her life. She's always been pretty comfortable has always probably seen her opportunities go through. And so she is just like the classic example of the overnight success, really. And we know that type really well. We know even the composer is also an up-and-comer who, even though like early on in the film, he discovers that the director of the ballet that, you know, becomes like this pivotal villain. Like he plagiarized part of his work, but because he is powerless, he decides to like take a job from him anyway. So you get like a sense of who he is as well. And then this director could be This really villainous character, he's very controlling, but yeah, they all could be two dimensional, but you all can see how they're feeling for sure. And like, especially with like the director character, you, there's like a couple scenes later on in the movie where you see him kind of just sitting alone in his really fancy apartment and you realize that he's so controlling, not necessarily because he's even like in love with Victoria or anything. It's just because he doesn't want anyone to know that he's vulnerable. He's just so used to this power that he has on the stage that he refuses to let go of it really in any facet of his life
0: there's a bit where he's arguing with somebody i think it is the composer and um he accuses lermontov of being envious of her talents and he's just he yells back he's like of course i am but in a way that you could never understand they show that this guy's just like hungry for to have a talent that he can show off so he kind of uses these dancers as a way to like promote himself because i'm the one who owns the show and i'm the one who runs the show your power is my power. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I mean, it's, he's a total power trip kind of dude, and he's super evil yeah. in this very um, tight lipped, closed fist kind mm-hmm. of way.
1: Yeah, because like he's evil, but you like also, you, like, you can weirdly get in his headspace, like, you. Kind of know that feeling of, like, not wanting to lose, like, a certain control over some aspect of your life that is successful. So, yeah, you get that. You can also see Victoria's thing. I think it helps, too, because Jack Cardiff's cinematography, it's this Technicolor cinematography. And during that era, like, in Hollywood, like, I think a lot of the time they just used this process as a way to just make a movie look prettier whereas I feel like here it really highlights the emotions of these characters in a way that can't be conveyed in the screenplay like just the way people's eyes look because of the cinematography it's like they burn and you can see into their souls and it highlights even like when like a vein is twitching you can see that and so I, there's like this unspoken dimensionality that comes from how the photography represents these people and that shows up in a lot of Pal and Pressburger's mm-hmm. movies because they collaborated a lot with Cardiff, and so most of their movies have this same kind of thing where they have this artificial color, but it also brings out this realness as well that's not in the screenplay.
0: I think the cinematography does benefit the medium that they're playing with. You know, this this is a work of metafiction, right? They do have a story within the story here. You have the story of the red shoes contained within the story of Victoria's journey Mm. through ballet and there's a really pretentious way to do this and there's a really not pretentious way to do this and I think they nail the latter right they they get it really well and part of it is that they are able to show a distinction between being on set and being backstage and being out in the real world in this really interesting way there's this one shot that I remember so well a lot of these shots look like paintings because they're so well composed but there's one where they're backstage and it's before the first show and all the dancers are standing around and I think they're being lectured to by somebody before the show starts, but they're all on the right side of the stage backstage and you can see on the left side of the screen, you're looking out across the stage towards the audience. And the curtain's still drawn, but you're seeing you're seeing the stage from the reversed angle that you would normally see it from. I'm trying to think of like another example of where metafiction works really well in a movie. I feel like it happens in a way that's animated usually. Like the yeah. the, the 17 minute montage in this movie would be like the example of it, and it's so it works so well because it looks so different from the rest of the exactly. film. It's like more yellow and like almost green colored than mm. some of the rest, which is more like these deep yellows and beiges and reds. <laughs> this is kind of a goofy example for this movie, but the first Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows movie, there's a whole sequence where they're talking about the story of the Deathly Hallows and they look into this storybook kind of and there's this animated sequence where they explain the three like powerful objects and it's all animated and it's like that. And that works well too because it's so, it's just another story within the story but it looks so different from Mm -hmm. the rest of the world. Yeah. I can't think of a bad example, but I know that there are some out there. No, there
1: are definitely bad ones. I think like a really good one too, I was talking about this earlier, like the movie like adaptation directed by Spike Jonze is really good because it doesn't even necessarily address its metafiction. Just everything about it is based in truth, but also is fictionalized, but there also is a story within a story. Like it's so complicated.
0: Right. That's the movie where the story is happening during the making of the movie being John Malkovich, Right.
1: It's, like, in the aftermath of it, kind of. No, but, like, the whole story is, like, a screenwriter is trying to adapt this woman's novel, which happened in real life, but then it has all these twists that, like, didn't happen in real life while this other story is going. Like, it's (laughs) very hard. So, like, metafiction, I feel like, can either be, like, that, where it's, like, super convoluted and has all these different dimensions that make it kind of confusing. In a way, you have that or you have metafiction that might be, like, a better idea that just doesn't go well for the whole movie. Like, I think... Even, like, the Scream movies, like, those are metafictional because, like, they're always trying to, like, even, like, in Scream 2, like, they have so many moments where they're focused on, like, there's, like, an adaptation of the events that happen in Scream 1 that are in it. And so, like, it can be complicated or it sometimes doesn't suit the movie itself very well. Whereas I think this one parallels really well because in the movie, what she goes through, she is being very controlled and feeling kind of oppressed where she's being forced in the Red Shoes ballet to do something that she doesn't want to necessarily like it's i don't know they're like parallels but it also feels like one version of it is very rabid and then one is very locked up by comparison
0: blake would you please take me to the wonderful land of fun facts oh wow i mean i guess i can
1: I think, better than my fun facts for our last episode. They're a little more since this movie's older. so They've had you know, time
0: to ferment. They've had
1: time to ferment. Some things have come out of the woodwork. It's great. Ooh. All right. And this
0: movie is filled with woodwork.
1: So much. <laughs> so on her first day of shooting, Shira got, like, really, really badly sunburned and, like, developed this blister. And so, like, that made a lot of the filming really painful for her. And then later on, she also wrenched her neck really badly when she, like, had to leave from a window... And then because of that, she, like, had this injury that was, like, this big scratch that showed up. And then that turned into, like, an abscess. Which is, like, crazy when you watch it because she's so elegant and so perfect, basically. And yet she's going through all these, like, painful ordeals that, like, don't even show up. So, like, I feel like that would just make... Production terrible, honestly. To suffer through that,
0: movies are so dangerous. They are it's dangerous. So dangerous to make like movies. you hear
1: stuff. Like I remember, like what movie was? Oh, like even like in The Exorcist when like Linda, I mean Ellen Burstyn's like thrown against a wall. Like she broke her tailbone. Like yeah. it's just. Stuff happens all the time. People die and on set. Yeah,
0: the those poor kids and the adult who died in the was it the Twilight Zone movie yeah. with the helicopter accident? Mm-hmm. Oh my god! It's
1: crazy because it's like it's sad. Cause like these people just want to like be in a movie, but it's like you also. Could die. Like, it's nuts. More fun facts. So, Michael Powell, he... When he and Pressburger were planning the movie, they had always thought sheer. Like, it was never a doubt in their mind that they wanted to cast her. But she was really skeptical because she primarily liked to dance. She thought movies were frivolous. And so, it took them over a year to persuade her to do it. She, like, would kind of be like, maybe I'll do it. I don't know. And so... It took a lot of convincing. But then when, like, they actually did make it, Shearer was surprised because she actually didn't really like working with Michael Powell especially. Later, she had described him as being really distant and aloof, and she would, like, ask for guidance because, like, she had never really acted before. But he wouldn't help her out, which sounds like something that Alfred Hitchcock would do, too. Just kind of, like... Sounds
0: kind of like the character Lermontov in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, honestly.
1: Very hard to work with. Which I feel like you hear of directors doing that and actors not liking it, but... I feel like that often happens with performances that are really good because you have these actors trying to figure out for themselves how their characters should be. So I think for her, even though it might have not been a fun experience, that aloofness makes her performance more powerful because she is having to reach so far. And also, too, like, Powell would make her and other dancers work for a long time and, like, work for hours on end on, like, these concrete floors that were really uncomfortable. So Their legs would swell up for a lot of filming, so not fun. The main 17-minute ballet sequence took over six weeks to shoot. It employed 120 paintings of the artist Tyne Heckworth, who was really pivotal throughout the movies making just because they wanted to have this distinct look. He was the art director. And also the dancing newspaper that you see in that sequence was achieved through like carefully cutting and, like, a lot of extensive using usage of wires, so a lot of technical stuff went into play. And also, too, like, Jack Cardiff, when he was photographing that scene, when people would, like, jump in the air, he would, like, intentionally, like, slow down the camera to make it seem like they were hovering in midair for a second to add this element of fantasy. And
0: they did put Moira Shearer on wires at one point too, like to have her float around. Yeah,
1: like when she would, yeah, jump. They wanted to like add that element of um, reality.
0: There's one jump that she does where the camera does kind of slow down. Yeah. It's the first one where she leaps through the air and the camera's kind of tracking low where I thought, did she actually do that? I couldn't, <laughs> I I believe couldn't it, tell honestly. if she jumped like that or if she was suspended. Mm-hmm. I, it was very magical.
1: Yeah, no, it all works really well. That's also one of Martin Scorsese's favorite movies. He often cites it as something that was profoundly influential on his work, which is interesting because I feel like so many of his movies have this street grit that is so iconic and what people think of when they think of Scorsese's style. So the fact that this movie he really takes to is this very glamorous, uh, you know, technicolor extravaganza Really, you know, made him want to make movies in the first place. Very interesting. Very. And I guess also like after the movie was made, a lot of the audiences complained to the art director like about the grim ending. And he pointed out to a lot of people that, like, oh, if you actually read the original fairy tale, like, the ending is way worse. So oh, if you yeah. think this is bad, go ahead and read that. So that was a complaint for a lot of people. She's, but... like,
0: totally messed up and on crutches with wooden feet in the uh, her fairy tale, man. So it's so bad. bad.
1: That's really bad. So in a way, you know, Sheer has it lucky in this movie compared. It's rough. All right, those are my fun facts hey, thanks. for today. Those are great. You know, I tried. Good ones.
0: <laughs> they felt, those ones felt fermented to me. They felt They felt, robust.
1: yeah. A lot of them were people like <laughs> spilling the tea later on, so Yeah. That's wow. how it has to be. I think people will never talk badly about movies right when they come out, you know? Yeah. It's like how Amy I Adams agree. like didn't reveal until like last year, like, oh, like David Russell made me cry all the time on American Hustle, but like during the press tour. Like she would never say that. It just these things come out as time goes on.
0: <laughs> Can I guess what one of your favorite scenes is in the movie? Sure. I feel like you would be a really big fan of those opening 10 minutes with the snark contest before the movie like at the very beginning the people who are sitting in oh, the stands yeah. who are just like snarking at each other like oh I'm here to this <laughs> ballet because my my <laughs> professor is involved in the creation and the people are like we're just here to see the dancer because she's really good and like they just go back and forth it's so good
1: I do love that scene but weirdly I didn't love it because of the snark I liked it because I feel like it established right away that like an audience will never really know how much an artist suffers for their art like I'm, like, people are here for oh, fun. They're here to, like, prove to each other who's better. But, like, they'll never understand that, like, the people involved, everything they do revolves around this. And they're, like, dying. And then at the end, like, it really especially seems relevant. Because, like, you never know. You'll see this great art. You know, you'll think, like, wow, this is really incredible. Even, like, watching Sheeran dance too. You're, like, this has got to be so easy. But you know that it's not. Everyone is really really struggling
0: well way to take that one scene that i thought was just really funny and say something super insightful about it i feel like i've learned something (laughs) (laughs) it's fine
1: it is even going back like ballet to me i there's not i feel like a lot of movies that circle around the world of ballet which is a shame because i think it is such a beautiful art form and it is so expensive like to watch it in real life that i feel like cinema is like the cheapest way to watch it and you don't get too much of it but You watch it and it's just, it's gorgeous. You get so much tap dancing in movies and stuff. But, I mean, people, ballet is something that is so much harder. I mean, don't you have to, like, break your feet before you do it? Like, it's so, it's incredible to watch it. And so I think this movie really shows the beauty and grace of that and brings it to a wider audience in a way that's not. Because I think it can seem off-putting because, you know, it is just these long sequences that are silent and stuff. But this movie makes it so much more appealing than it might be to watch in real life. Oh, okay. I did want to say, too, <laughs> it is funny because, like, Pal and Pressburger had this really, like, good collaborative streak, like, throughout most of the 40s, but this was actually one of their final movies together, even though they had had so much critical commercial success. They ended up going their separate ways after the war. I and mean, this is post-war, but, like, after the war, like, it definitely, like, winded down for them a lot more. And by the 50s, they never worked together, really, ever again. They, like, went their separate ways, and they... Still got along. It wasn't, like, a bad split or anything, but they never could recreate the success of their movies that they made in the 1940s, which is really interesting. One of Michael Powell's last movies was 1960s Peeping Tom, which is kind of a Hitchcockian thriller that, like, wasn't well-received at all and, like, wasn't like these movies. But yeah, like, watch looking at both their careers, it is interesting how they have these phases. You know, they started off early working separately, making different kinds of movies. They had this period in the 40s that was very distinctive of them and then later on they split up and could never find that ever again you don't have a lot of duos either like in directing especially during that period of filmmaking like now you see it a lot more but that was such a rare thing back then
0: yeah we, we talked at one point about periods of success and how sometimes it's okay to say you know i've made four movies and we made them over the span of 10 years and they were all just killers yeah and like now i'm separated from this person who i made all of them with should i continue to make movies Mm -hmm. and it's so strange because you know if you answer yes i should you might make something that's really awful and then Mm -hmm. people will public opinion will totally turn on you and people will forget that you made something like the red shoes and they'll just be like oh yeah he just made like this dumb movie in like 1966 (laughs) that was just dumb and it was a waste of time at the other end of the spectrum right you make those four really great movies over 10 years and then you stop and either you're perceived as like, oh, he made his stuff and he backed away and it was all great, or they're like, Why didn't this person ever make anything else? Yeah, like, bleh.
1: Yeah, honestly. It's like you
0: can't win. That's makes to feel bad for shame. Powell
1: too is because like that movie Peeping Tom, like at the time like was treated like that as like, you shouldn't have made this. This is like totally like tarnishing your legacy because it was kind of this CD thriller that was so different from these extravaganzas they made. But and so he had kind of thought for a long time that it was a failure and like this was a big mistake, and then now it's been so widely appraised as, like, actually being a total masterpiece. So it's, like, sad because for so long he had that mindset of, like, I just should have stopped when really, like, he meant, he made something that meant a lot to people. So it is interesting, like, those two perspectives.
0: Well, let's, let's do our final thoughts. Okay. And along with the final thoughts, I want you to say what your favorite scene was from the movie.
1: I mean, I feel like – what is my final thought? I would say this is, I think, some of the most – Cinematic filmmaking you could ever watch. There's such a there's such a beauty to what Pal and Pressburger do. Every every frame is like a painting. You feel that they have worked so hard to achieve this sort of beauty. This movie makes for such a big contrast from you know like the Hollywood Golden Age's movies. I mean, it was made in Britain, so you have this entirely different side of what this melodramatic musical filmmaking could be that you weren't seeing necessarily in Hollywood. So it does make for this contrast. Also so visually beautiful, great performances. It is one of the definitive dance movies. I think there's like a good chance you might have seen like Black Swan. So if you liked that, this is kind of a precursor to that. But I don't know, final thought. I think this is certainly a must watch. I think it's such an artistically important movie. I think what Pal and Pressburger were doing at the time was ahead of their time, but even now, like it's so nothing's really like it except maybe their own movies. So definitely worth a watch and then favorite scene i mean i think it's honestly just that 17 minute long ballet sequence i think that it's just so it's so stunning like it's unbelievable what they achieve there yeah,
0: yeah it's really breathtaking it's yeah, really something honestly my final thought is everything you just said is <laughs> i agree wholeheartedly but my final thought is yes you need to watch this movie this is a movie you need to watch if you want to learn something about camera technique you could watch this movie just watch it for for yourself and just think like what are they doing with the camera that's unique here because this they do so many classic movie things like you get a ton of frame within a frame in this movie Mm -hmm. that's like a standby but they also do they also break the rules in a couple of places there's times when the main character is spinning and the camera spins around as if you're first person with her and it's just rapid fast you can't see anything it's just a blur so if you want to learn about camera technique this is the movie that you should probably watch uh, to get an early idea of what that meant i think you need to watch this movie and i think the atmosphere you need to watch this movie in is in front of a fireplace oh wow swirling a glass of red wine oh and just leaning back and just letting it wash over you just take it in
1: yeah it's a a
0: two-hour experience (laughs) you have to settle down
1: i watched it on my bed with my laptop so you could do that, too, instead of whatever
0: you <laughs> want sure, to do. I'm, I'm sure that washed over you in kind of the similar way because you were, you know, horizontal. I least. guess, yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think if you can be as relaxed as possible, if you're at all antsy, this movie's going to feel long and it's going to drag. But if you're like, if you can just get into it and just let it hit you, yeah. it's a fantastic experience. Yeah,
1: just don't overthink it, just let it wash over you. Oh, man. Yeah.
0: And then my favorite scene is after the 17 minute montage i do love that it's hard yeah. to top that but my favorite scene when they're establishing what a controlling figure Lemontov is is when he's going and he's watching victoria perform and all of these other ballets and he watches her in a performance of swan lake and he's just sitting there in his private booth you know because he's so rich just looking down and shows her dancing and then it pans over to him and he's just got this angry kind of contemplative look on his face and it's playing of course the big piece that everybody knows from swan lake that sounds like something john williams would do but yeah i think that establishes what an envious man he is yeah i I love that development because there's no talking it's just visual and music and i think that's a fantastic way to get something across oh totally so you got to see it. <laughs> got to see it. Just do it. You want to do the recommendations first?
1: Sure. So I went with the general. I haven't seen every single one of Palin Pressburger's movies, but the ones that I have seen, I have totally adored. They're amazing filmmakers. One of my favorites that they've done is actually an anomaly. Most of their other movies of the 40s had a similar visual style to this. It's very ornate, technicolored, just beautiful to watch. But one of my favorites is... 1945's I Know Where I'm Going, which is stylistically different because it is done with this grainy black and white, not really a super big budget. It revolves around this woman who she is, like, planning on getting married to, like, the man that she thinks is, like, the man of her dreams. But then there's, like, this hitch. It, she's, like, going, she's traveling to meet her fiancé somewhere. But there's, like, a snag of the transportation. And she ends up getting stuck on this island, and there she has kind of a moment to reflect and she meets this other guy and then she starts to realize that maybe she doesn't actually know exactly where her life is going and maybe she doesn't have everything planned out in the way that she thought she did and so it is this very naturalistic comedy drama that is so different from their other movies because it seems to take place in this very very real world rather than this very cinematic dreamscape and it's One of their most effortlessly funny movies. It's a very realistic movie compared to what they had done before. And it has a really good leading performance from Wendy Hiller, who I think is always pretty underrated. She's primarily like a stage actress, but when she was in movies, she was really, really phenomenal. And this is one of her strongest performances. So check that out. I believe that's on the Filmstruck streaming service, which is... The Red Shoes can also be found on that. Maybe watch those back-to-back, who knows? And then I also picked... I'd say this is probably the directing duo's most famous movie. Um, It's 1947's Black Narcissus, which takes place in the Himalayan Alps. And these nuns are building a kind of a... Is it a monastery? Is that the correct term? I'm not positive. They're like building kind of a church to able to spread their religion around that area. And the movie deals with these themes of, like, grappling with religion versus pursuing romantic endeavors. It is kind of a morally thorny movie, but once again it has this gorgeous photography from Jack Cardiff and has a similar kind of rumbling intensity throughout the movie that eventually explodes into a very memorable finale. So I think this Black Narcissus is very similar to Red Shoes in the way that it begins this kind of elegant drama and then it just continues to build in its tension and so definitely worth the watch for those reasons. Also features Deborah Carr in an early performance that's very good. It kind of made her a star so yeah. What are your recommendations?
0: So I just went with two. Yes. Yeah. So I went with a more contemporary contemporary film also ballet related which we've mentioned a few times already which is Black Swan. Love it. Um. Oh yeah. It's a very intense film. Oh, in yeah. A really different way than The Red Shoes is. The Red Shoes deals with this kind of grand sweeping feeling of ballet and performance and it's it's more of a general story you know it it feels like a fairy tale Mm -hmm. black swan is much more interpersonal and it grapples with these themes of manipulation and emotional abuse and what it means to be comfortable with yourself just mental illness even but it's also about ballet and you get to see what it's like to be backstage and what the relationships are between dancers and between directors and producers i think it's very good yeah Uh, it's it's a deeper dive into some of the themes that you see begin to unearth in The Red Shoes. Mm -hmm. Natalie
1: Portman's like next level in Black Swan. I mean, that is, it's one of those performances like where she worked so hard just to like, even just look the part. Like it's just one of those things where it's so immersive and so dedicated.
0: And Mila Kunis is really great too. She's really good too. It makes me sad
1: because you don't see her in as many juicy roles that she was like given in Black Swan. Because she is so capable of it. Oh totally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. She's awesome. Black Swan's another, I think, must watch if you if you're into if you're into ballet.
1: (laughs) And one of the decade's best movies in general, I think. Like I can't think of a movie that's like stuck with me. I mean, it came out almost ten years ago and I still feel like I can vividly remember so much of
0: it. That's a movie that I watched on a laptop in bed, and <laughs> that one great. really hit me. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. And then my next recommendation is a little older. It's so some Hitchcock. Oh. Uh, if you really liked the opulent richness of this movie, all the, the people walking around in really fancy gowns and lots of diamonds and wearing tiaras and just being fancy and rich, <laughs> uh, and you like that feeling of romantic scale, then you need to see To Catch a Thief, mm. which is a great, great mystery film about a cat thief, and there's all these rich people walking around with diamonds and just looking gorgeous. Yeah. And some of the stuff that they do in the Red Shoes when they're in uh, Monte Carlo and showing all the the castles mm-hmm. and the, the sweeping oceans and the big, almost helicopter-esque shots of these big green expanses and ocean, they do the same kind of stuff in yeah. The Thief, and you get that sense of scale, and you go, whoa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Those are my wrecks That's what I got.
1: Incredible. Love those movies.
0: Great. So. <laughs> If you want to hear more of us talking about movies, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Android, and our website, uwpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TheFilmCast, or you can find us on our personal accounts at Aidan Walkerow or at Blake W. Peterson. If you want to write to us with a suggestion for a movie to watch, or you just want to share your thoughts, you can send us an email at cinemadventurepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. We want to get all those good movie thoughts out there. If you want to follow along with us, next week we'll be discussing Dead Poet Society. Blake, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me
1: this week and every week.
0: Yes. So blessed. Partners so in crime. Yeah. So blessed. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye bye. <laughs> engineering, and math. My name is Prapanit Dua, and I host a podcast called Women in STEM, where I sit down and talk with men and women in different STEM fields about where their careers have taken them, and I also discuss important issues surrounding women in these fields. Join me every other Tuesday on the Soundbite Network from the University of Washington. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, Visit the Soundbite's website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.